Welcome to Rock Talk, the podcast where a couple of jabronis get to know the movie roles of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I'm Jordan Rummel, joined as always by the incomparable, the effervescent, the crystal-lipped genius of DC, Charlie Guile. Charlie, how you doing? I'm doing okay. I don't know how I feel about that introduction. I feel like you're really ramping up the expectations, but I'm happy to be here, happy to talk about a movie that honestly might be the most unique movie I've ever seen, and that's not necessarily a compliment. Charlie, this was the strangest movie I have ever seen in my entire life. I cannot wait to get into today's topic, Southland Tales. But of course, before we do that, it is time for us to take a look at our rock news of the week. Mazel, that's fantastic news! First off, The Rock was on Jimmy Kimmel last night, and uh, one of the big things he let slip is that his girlfriend has an April 25th due date for their new baby daughter. But there's a problem. Dwayne Johnson's going to be in Shanghai when it happens, so if his wife goes into labor, he told Jimmy Kimmel to go ahead and take over and deliver the baby. Um, Would you trust Jimmy Kimmel with the delivery of your child? Sure, I I think I would. I mean, I definitely don't know what I'm doing, and I think he has kids, so he's been there before. He's an old pro. Uh, anyways, of all the late night hosts, I feel like he's got the surest he's got the deftest touch. Yeah, uh, I definitely wouldn't let Jimmy Fallon do it. He's too no. hyper and all over the place. Unless you know uh, Jimmy Fallon, they do that those skits with the they're called real people fake hands. Have you seen that? Oh my god! With so the, maybe the you little could, poles on the hands. <laughs> yeah, maybe he could deliver it with the fake mannequin hands. <laughs> that would be really funny. But the second piece of news is really. What we're here to talk about, Dwayne Johnson actually today the uh, is on the cover of Rolling Stone, and there is a fascinating article, and it's got so many good nuggets in it. Jordan, what did you think was the most interesting thing? So this interview covers such a wide array of conversation topics, things that we've covered on this show, including his political ambitions and Fast and Furious. Um, honestly, it's hard to pick one, but I think... You know, one that really stuck out to me has to do with the upcoming Rampage movie, uh, and particularly the power that Dwayne Johnson appears to have on set with that movie. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about from this article? I think so. It just goes to show you that when you hire Dwayne Johnson to be a lead in your movie, he's not just going to act. He's going to offer his input, and they're going to take that input seriously. Uh, apparently, I don't know if this, is, if this is completely a spoiler or not, the end of the movie ended originally with George the Gorilla dying. And Dwayne Johnson was not happy with that. He says that you should go to the movies to sort of escape the uh, the reality of life. And so he thought it should end a little happier. They say that they came up with a pretty good compromise. I don't know how I feel about this, though. Do you really want a compromised ending? Well, it's strange in that Dwayne Johnson was able to exert his will on the ending of this movie. You know, one way or another, the writers chose to write it, you know, for a reason. It's interesting that Dwayne Johnson views his own personal brand, as he explains in this piece, to be one of, you know, lightness and the good guy always coming out on top. Um, He did mention in this same breath that one of the reasons he doesn't bring, uh, you know, sadness into his movies is because he doesn't want the audience to have to deal with any of, of his darkness And one of the things that he describes as a personal darkness, and this, again, was something I was sort of surprised to hear about, 
and I know he's been kind of vocal on social media about it, but he's he's had sort of multiple bouts of depression, which was just a, it's a pretty revealing revealing thing for a superstar to to talk about. Yeah, and I feel like it's becoming less and less taboo to talk about mental health. Um, but you're right. One of the things that he talks about in this article, he says, I've had a few bouts of depression as it ha- as happens to a lot of us. The first time was around the time of his divorce, around 2008 or 2009. I was struggling through a lot of personal stuff that was really messing me up. I was just struggling, man, struggling to figure out what kind of dad I'm going to be, realizing I'd done a piss poor job of cultivating relationships and a lot of my friends had fallen by the wayside. I was just scared. Um, and, And the article sort of connects that 2008-2009 period to sort of what we've called his family-friendly era, where he's rattled off three or four underwhelming family-friendly movies. And I think that now that we have this context, it's really interesting to go back and look at movies like The Game Plan and kind of see what he was going through. Right. This is right in the heart of that Game Plan, uh, Race to Witch Mountain, Planet 51, Tooth Fairy. That's when all these movies came out. And it's interesting to to re you know to to take a look back at those in the context of this revelation, and then you look at the movies that came out after, including you know Faster, Fast Five, uh, GI Joe, Snitch. Like it's a definite turning point in his career. It's just an, another interesting perspective when you look back at a, a part of his career that we are so quick to mock. Uh, there might have been kind of something darker happening behind the scenes. So you know, it's nice to actually hear him talk about his personal life in this way. Yeah, I think so too. I have a a feeling that this Rolling Stone writer has listened to our podcast because a lot of the people that they talk to here kind of echo what we have said on the podcast. Like um, one of the former directors that Dwayne Johnson has worked with, they talked to him and he says, it's kind of amazing to see how far he's come as an actor. A couple of weeks ago, I was flipping through the channels and one of his first movies came on. This movie, Doom, from the mid-2000s, it was old enough to where he had hair. To see subtleties that he brings now, and I give mad props to him. Uh, just Because for us, that's how we date movies, is his hairstyle, or his lack of hairstyle. Right, that's a specific benchmark on <laughs> yeah. Rock Talk Podcast. I feel um, like we've spent so much time talking about Dwayne Johnson hair. Uh, I'm glad other people are starting to pick up on that. And they mention another thing, you know, they this article goes a little bit into his his uh, career playing football at Miami. Um, and, and again, another director mentions that he, the fact that he was an athlete meant that as an actor, he was a very coachable from the beginning, which is, again, you know, we always talk about how his background in sports can be seen in a lot of his work, whether it's giving an inspirational speech in the Gridiron Gang to trying to rally the team in Fast and Furious, like not only being coached behind the scenes, but his work in front of the camera seems also equally defined by his time on the field. Yeah. Um, and I, it honestly seems like he is kind of like Luke Hobbs in real life. Um, the, the, from the people that they talk to, they all describe him only getting mad one single time that they can think of. And that's because, you know, shooting whatever project he was working on was going to take way longer than they thought. And he was going to miss his flight to go back home and see his family. But rather than getting mad or walking off the set, he gathered around like the cast and crew and everyone and said, okay, I'm disappointed in all of us that that it's come to this point, but how can we solve this and move forward? You know, he's really, he plays a lot of leaders that sort of, that direct and lead teams of people. Sounds like, you know, he may have a future in directing a movie at some point. 
Yeah, and it's encouraging to see that, you know, he has such a reputation as being a stand-up guy, but that gets confirmed again and again in testimonials like this one. There is so little bad press about Dwayne Johnson out there, but my perception is that he's actually that good of a guy and that much of a leader. Um, and, you know, to react in that way, in, if that's his worst, you know, geez, that's pretty great. Yeah. Well, one person that may sort of disagree with us might be Vin Diesel. The Rock confirmed Oof. his beef with Vin Diesel. He didn't get into any details, but he did confirm that they never shared any scenes together in Fast 8, uh, which when you know that, it's so apparent when you watch that movie. Uh, but he doesn't get into the reasons why, which I think is interesting. I have to, if I'm if I'm going to take my best stab at this, it's that those movies, the Fast and Furious movies, that was Vin Diesel's turf. You know, he was in, he came back even when those movies were done. Uh, that was his family. And Dwayne Johnson came in and took those movies to another level. I have to think that Vin Diesel couldn't have taken kindly to having kind of his franchise become, you know, something else entirely because of Dwayne Johnson. No matter how much more successful that meant the movies were going to be. I don't know. I think it's two alphas going toe to toe. Well, which is what makes their fight in Fast Five just so fascinating. But another thing to keep in mind on the Fast and Furious movies is that Vin Diesel is a producer. So he's making decisions on set, and I don't believe Dwayne Johnson is. So he talks about a heart-to-heart that Vin and he had had in his trailer. And he said, and that's when I came to realize is that we have a fundamental difference in philosophies on how we approach movie making and collaborating. It took me some time, but I'm grateful for that clarity, whether we work together again or not. And oh, yikes. That means that, I mean, if he's not in the fa- if he's not in Fast 9 or Fast 10, maybe he like he just sticks to the spin-offs, which would be so terrible. But my yeah, what I'm assuming, what I'm getting from that and from what we know about Dwayne Johnson is that he is such a collaborator that he lets other people, you know, sort of voice their opinion. It's all about working as a team. I feel like Vin is the complete opposite. Yeah, I get the same the same idea. I I feel as if, you know, Vin Diesel, Dwayne Johnson on set, it's a battle of two two completely different personalities. I get the sense that Dwayne Johnson is up at the crack of dawn ready to shoot these scenes. For some reason, I get the sense that Vin Diesel is more laissez-faire about the whole thing, you know, drinking a Corona between takes. <laughs> uh, and then the collaborating line, I think that's a direct... You know, I think that Dwayne Johnson, as we saw with, as we've seen now with Rampage, I think he likes to have a very involved role in in actively shaping how a movie looks at the final product. Vin, you know, is probably, I don't know, I think there's probably a really strong creative difference between these two. Um, but I don't, if I think that losing Dwayne Johnson is only going to hurt a series already lacking uh, from Paul Walker. I don't know. I don't know if you can lose two heavy hitters and keep going thing about Vin Diesel though is he should probably start taking notes from The Rock when you look at Vin Diesel's other movies like Triple X is basically a Vin Diesel propaganda movie both of the Triple X's that he's in and they're both god awful I mean fun but not very good although they do make a lot of money I guess don't you think that those movies you put Dwayne Johnson in instead of Vin I feel like you have a whole, like, I think it takes it to another level. Like, I think Dwayne Johnson does the Vin Diesel bit almost better than Vin Diesel does. Oh, yeah, a lot of, of cases. He does. Yeah, and I think he's a better actor. But uh, another quote, just to put a button on the Vin Diesel beef, uh, he says, but I wish him all the best and I harbor no ill will there just because of the clarity we have. 
He considers this and then lets out a big sly laugh. Actually, you can erase that last part about no ill will. We'll just keep it with clarity. I mean... Oh, Dwayne Johnson. Wow. I mean, so, so Dwayne Johnson seems to be insulting. the nicest guy in the world, yet he's really... This is... Like, these are some strong words when it comes to Vin Diesel. Yeah. So, something happened to these two. Um, but it is this overall sense of coolness when dealing with issues uh, like a creative difference that is going to serve him very well if he decides to drop into politics, which is something that I know we've discussed. And Charlie, we get a lot of, you know, to use Dwayne Johnson's word, clarity on kind of his own thoughts about running for, for political office in this article as well. Yeah, I mean, this is the, it seems like this is the most he's ever talked about uh, his political ambitions or the most detailed he gets. He, he goes into a little bit of his own uh, political history you know, I think at one point he was a registered Republican, but now he's an independent. He says he voted for Obama twice, but didn't vote in 2016, which honestly I think is a little, I don't know, I feel like that was the easy way out. I feel like maybe he uh, regrets doing that. And I guess actually further down in the article, it sounds like he's sort of coming around and maybe realizing that was a mistake. He says, the next elections in 2020, I think I'll be a little bit more vocal in who I support. So that'll be really interesting if he, especially if he like, goes on the campaign trail and starts stumping for some people. Yeah, I think that Dwayne Johnson uh, would have to be uh, on that anti-Trump train. When you look at some of his later movies, kind of after that mid-career turning point we talked about, so much of his entire, of his late career arc is defined by the good guy winning, you know, saying no to bad guys and bullies. So I think that, you know, he'd be a strong voice uh, for a, for someone going up against Trump. But it doesn't sound necessarily like he's ready to run himself, which I thought was pretty surprising. No, not at all. Uh, One of the things that he, this actually kind of puts the cap on this article, but he says, I'll say this really quick, which is cool. So there's a well-known political figure who said, all right, listen, if and when you want to run for president, when you text me this word, I'll come running. Don't text any other word, not hi, not how are you doing, not what's up, just this word. And apparently the word is actually a phrase, uh, freedom patriot. Who? That's bananas, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely bananas. So he, so if he does run for president, we can call that Operation Freedom Patriot. Oh. But who do you think told him this? I, I can't imagine any Republican would, or I can't imagine any Democrat would talk to him and say, hey, the code word is freedom patriot. There, I, I agree. There are two names that come to mind for me with this. Uh, the first is John McCain, even though I know he's he's a little bit up there. I don't know why. I just feel like he would. I feel like John McCain and Dwayne Johnson would get along. Yeah. Um, and the second person is who I consider to be uh, a Republican Party good old Southern bro, uh, Rick Perry. I don't know why. I feel like Freedom <laughs> Patriot is a Rick Perry phrase. Well, who's corny enough to actually suggest that? I think uh, maybe Mike Huckabee would do the Ooh. same. Did you see his tweet yesterday about the colonoscopy? Is that what Mike Huckabee's doing now? Just tweeting about <laughs> colonoscopies? Well, he said his colonoscopy was done by a Russian. That's what he calls Russian inter- or uh, Russian meddling, which oh is a God. terrible joke. Oh so I could definitely see God. Mike Huckabee also doing this. I mean, I, I, I just I implore everyone to go out there and read this article. 
We only scratched the surface. It's fascinating, and it also has some really, really great photos along with it. Jordan, he's doing all denim, and he's like out. He has like a pickup truck. It's so amazing. He's got the denim on denim. He's got the button down, buttoned like halfway up his bod. The Wrangler shirt, Wrangler jeans. Yeah, like this is this is the people sexiest guy around at its finest. This is what the people were waiting for, and I'm here for it. I will say this is probably the closest I've ever gotten to understanding why he was chosen as people's sexiest man alive. Yeah, he looks he looks like a normal human being, like not a normal human being, but like a normal human in the sense that he has like sexuality. Yeah, he looks like uh like a balder browner version of the marlboro man (laughs) that's the face of american sex the american west so go ahead on rollingstone.com check out this article it is incredible uh but now of course it's time for daddy to go to work daddy's gotta go to work Today, we are taking a look at 2006 Southland Tales, rated R comedy, sci-fi, mystery, and musical, question mark. Uh, It was directed and written by Richard Kelly, who you might know from a movie called Donnie Darko. Charlie, I know you've seen Donnie Darko. Did it surprise you in any way that the same guy who made Donnie Darko made Southland Tales? I think when you know that, Southland Tales begins to make a lot more sense. Uh, Not that this movie makes complete sense, although it seems to be a pretty divisive movie. A lot of people out there really love it. Yeah, the internet seems to be enamored with this movie. Um, I know that we have our own opinions, which we'll get to soon, but there is a real split uh, between critics and internet users, Um, but we'll get to that soon. With a budget of $17 million, uh, Southland Tales made in the United States uh, a strong $275,000, and around the world, Charlie, not much better, just under $375,000. So this is a movie that uh, didn't quite make a ton of money. No, not at all. I mean, this movie lost, you know, $16.7 million on a $17 million budget. Uh, I think a big part of that is because it only opened in very limited theaters. And I think part of that is because this movie is so inaccessible that it would probably scare off the average viewer, I would guess. I mean, this movie showed originally at Cannes and an unfinished version, and it was three hours long. Oh, I can't imagine an extra like 30 minutes tacked on to the movie that I just watched. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's and two it got, hours 20 now, yeah. It got uniformly booed out of Cannes. And I can't imagine, and then critics completely panned it. Roger Ebert called it the worst movie he's ever seen. I mean, I can't imagine this being the type of movie that would have spread word of mouth. Like, I don't know who the audience for this film was. Yeah, I don't know, because even as, Donnie Darko isn't an easy film. But this takes that up, it ratchets it up by quite a bit. Um, I think part of that is because this movie is the second half of the Southland Tales uh, story. But the first half of it is in graphic novel form. So this movie starts off and it says, chapter four. (laughs) Where did the first three chapters go? That was so confusing, not knowing that going into this movie. Like, 
this this movie doesn't hold your hand in even the slightest way. Like the exposition is pretty much non-existent except for like a 15 minute exposition piece that just doesn't explain anything. It's just 15 minutes of like what to me felt like gibberish. Oh yeah. The first, like I counted like 11 or 12 minutes of this movie is a Justin Timberlake voiceover explaining kind of where we're at. It kind of summarizes the three graphic novels I I read, Uh, but it doesn't do a very good job. I was so confused. I mean, remember how confusing, uh, the G.I. Joe initial voiceover was, this is like impossible compared to that. Yeah, this this takes that that and makes G.I. Joe seem like like uh, a, a children's book in comparison. This movie, Charlie, I know you're going to kind of give your best shot to to kind of walk us through a little bit of a plot summary here. I, for the life of me, could not piece A to B to C in this film. It is foreign to me. No clue. No, and it actually involved reading a lot of internet comments uh, after I had watched the movie to sort of be like, oh, so that's what they're getting at. So essentially what you need to know about this movie is that it is an adaptation of the book of Revelation from the Bible. And once you know that, it makes it a little easier to understand what just happened, but not much. So I'm going to refer to everybody by their actor names because their character names don't really matter. I mean, we can we could say that Dwayne Johnson's character name is Boxer Santoros. Let me just dive right into this. Justin Timberlake and Sean William Scott served together in Iraq. Sean William Scott accidentally grenaded Justin Timberlake and thinks he's dead. That's where the movie opens. Uh, then The Rock and Mandy Moore are married. But there are photos of The Rock and Sarah Michelle Gellar together. Sarah Michelle Gellar is a porn star who also has her own TV show. Uh, they write a screenplay together called The Power, and The Rock decides he needs to research his role in that movie. So that's where that's how he spends the rest of the movie, is researching this other character. That's when he also teams up with Sean William Scott, who is actually working against him to bring down the Republican Party ahead of the election. Because remember, The Rock's character... Although he's a famous actor, he's also tied to the Republican Party. Uh, There is a rebellion of neo-Marxists in this movie. And uh, Sean William Scott is involved with them. And now they're going to set up The Rock by making him think that he was in on a double murder. When it actually goes terribly wrong, John Lovitz, yes, that John Lovitz, (laughs) murders two people. But it turns out that that was all organized by the Marxists so that they could... um, blackmail the Republican Party anyway. Keep in mind, this is a near-future World War III situation going on, and the United States has created a new agency to spy on citizens, carte blanche, all in the name of national security. A person who works there, this is I don't know this person's name, uh, and I suspect nobody that watches this movie does either, gets a hold of the script called The Power and reads it and believes it's the real story about the end of the world. Meanwhile, there's this sort of mad scientist character played by the inconceivable guy from The Princess Bride. And it is, (laughs) I will say one thing, it's very unsettling to see him as an old man. Anyway, so he creates basically this renewable energy source that's powered by the ocean uh, that runs on this organic material that is found beneath the earth's mantle and they call it fluid karma 
Uh, but fluid karma can also be used as a drug, and it was an experimented on with the soldiers in Iraq. And uh, when you take this drug, it gives you telepathic abilities. So fast forward to election night. There's a big party. There's a big Republican party on a mega blimp uh, that Boxer infiltrates, now thinking that the script that he wrote is actually uh, a prophecy that'll foretell the end of the world. There he learns that a time rift at some point in the past was opened up and he was taken into it thus creating two versions of himself. Uh, Sean William Scott, who has to this point been playing twins in this movie, uh, we find out that they're not twins, but they're both the same people with the same soul. And Bai Ling tells Dwayne Johnson that, you know, what would happen if two people with identical souls shook hands? And Dwayne Johnson explains to her that the fourth dimension would collapse, thus bringing on the end of the world. And then the end of the movie happens when Sean William Scott finally shakes the hand of his twin clone time lord person. Oh, I mean, those are broad strokes. And I'm sorry wow. if you lost every single listener. Charlie, that was uh, a Yaoman job right there of <laughs> trying to get through this this plot. The problem is, as much as you just described it, the movie doesn't even take the level of care that you just did in trying to get the plot across. It is like a fever dream hodgepodge kaleidoscope of just like random scenes with random characters, musical sequences. I didn't realize half the things you said until you just said them in this movie. Yeah. And I, like I said, I pieced a lot of this together from internet comments and actually a relatively helpful salon.com article from 2007. Yeah, it was one of those things. I mean, it was sort of a collection of scenes, almost vignettes into these people who live in Southland, which is what they call Los Angeles in this world. Um, and so we kind of see into their lives, get little snippets, and then they kind of sort of start weaving themselves together in the second half of this movie. Keep in mind, the second half of this movie is still an hour and 25 minutes long. This movie never ended. It just kept going with scenes I didn't know, with characters I had never seen before, with plot lines I couldn't understand. Like, it was, I felt like the movie would never end, and it upset me constantly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like knowing what I know now, a little part of me at some point would want to go back and rewatch this, but I know I never will because it really was a struggle. Um, some of the things, if we're going to focus on positive things here, there are a lot of people that I like in this movie. And we have Dwayne Johnson, we have Sean William Scott, so that's a nice reunion. Sarah Michelle Geller, Mandy Moore, Justin Timberlake, Bai Ling, Kevin Smith. Uh, Sherry O'Terry, John Lovitz, Amy Poehler, all those from SNL. Jordan, somebody that you caught, and I cannot believe you caught it, Zelda Rubenstein from, well, I only know her from Teen Witch. Well, that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's the only IMDb credit to her name uh, that matters. But yes, she, the, the... The the little person witch from Teen Witch is in this movie <laughs> for some reason. It's crazy. Honestly, um, Charlie, I just want she was my North Star in this movie because <laughs> nothing else was grounding me except her performance, which seemed ex like identical to what she did in Teen Witch. Yeah, um, I think she kind of only operates on one level. But Jordan, 
Let me ask you a question, and if your brain explodes after I ask you this, I'm sorry. What is this movie? What is, is it? it? A comedy? Is it a drama? Is it a satire? I don't know. Ugh. It. Ugh. Well, this is this is what gets me kind of angry about this movie. I think that this movie thought it was so smart, and I thought that it. I think that it thinks it was a lot of different things. To me, it was like this guy who wrote Donnie Darko tried to make another version of Donnie Darko that was also funny, that was also a political commentary. Um, but I don't. I will. I mean, for all its faults, I will say I think it it successfully transcended any one genre. Whether that's a compliment, I don't know. But I think that it did transcend my typical notion of what genres are. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I guess I can say for this movie is that it it's ambitious. Does that mean that it was successful? I, I don't think so. I think a lot of people may have been tricked into liking this movie. It does seem that this, like, it seems like the same people that would comment on YouTube videos would be the kind of people that would like this movie. So maybe that's why uh, I saw a lot of YouTube comments. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. Like, this seems to appeal to some strange fringe group um, on the internet. I will say, so 15 minutes into this film, I was on board, okay? The movie opens with this, like, you know, found footage on a camcorder of a family in Texas having, like, a barbecue, and suddenly there's a nuclear strike that hits the town and we kind of watch all of this unfold on the video camera and we and we watch the families reacting to it i was on board cuz we get that we get this you know this moby soundtrack which comes and goes randomly in this movie oh was it uh, moby yeah M- moby provided oh this the sporadic soundtrack of southland tales but he opens it up with this like really killer you know strange electronic guitar thing and then it opens up with this Justin Timberlake voiceover where he's like, this is the way the world ends. And at the very beginning, I was all in because I love this kind of sci-fi junk. It reminded me of Cloud Atlas a little bit, oh. um, which I love. I love Cloud Most, Atlas. Like everybody on Earth hates that movie. <laughs> I bet you that there's a, a the Venn diagram of Cloud Atlas fans and Southland Tales fans intersects in a pretty strong way. Oh, I'm pretty um, sure it's just a circle, which <laughs> right. excluding you. You are the lone holdout. Right. Um, one thing I do want to talk about, though, is Sarah Michelle Gellar's TV show. Oh, my God. Basically, they show this what is so it, like many porn times. star The View? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is a bunch of porn stars that discuss, like, the political topics of the day, but also porn star things, I think. Kind of. I mean, so we see the beginning of it and it says, we're going to talk about issues that matter to Americans like abortion, terrorism, crime, poverty, social reform, quantum teleportation, teen Mm. horniness, and war. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote down the entire list because it was so crazy. Although now looking back on it, quantum teleportation, I guess that's exactly what happened to Dwayne Johnson and Sean William Scott in this movie. Right, they kind of hit the nail on the head in like the first ten minutes of the film. Yeah, but huh. but this same this same talk show I love. Like in that same breath, they have a whole conversation about bang bus. Like they're like, <laughs> do you like to get slammed to the ground and f? It's like, oh my god! <laughs> oh wow, very like, aggressive. Like Sarah Michelle Gellar, like what is going on in this movie? I that was the other thing that I did appreciate is that for all of the recognizable faces in this movie, it did feel like director Richard Kelly 
did give them the creative uh, freedom and mobility to really play characters like, as far away from roles that they may have been typecast before. Like, everyone in this movie is playing very ambitious roles compared to what they'd done. Oh, I, I would definitely say so. Um, especially people like Amy Poehler, Sherry O'Terry, and John Lovitz. Although I will say that anytime John Lovitz was on screen, I thought it was so funny. Um, at one point, he straight up just shoots Amy Poehler. It's, I mean, it's honestly the funniest shooting I've seen since Burn After Reading when Brad Pitt gets shot yes. in the face halfway through the movie. Well, there's a lot of that in this film where they're trying to, they kind of go for these like sort of gags through violence. I would say there's sort of a callback to the Pulp Fiction getting shot on the toilet at one point. Um, there's this one moment where the, that, the you mentioned that there's that employee who reads the script online. She confronts Dwayne Johnson on a beach and says that if, if, uh, he doesn't allow her to uh, orally please him um, <laughs> that she will shoot herself right there on the beach and it's like this and then she very gets weird right after that just so, yeah. like guns are so down I'm, so okay that's another question I have why was Justin Timberlake like in the middle of an ocean with a sniper rifle for like 80% of this movie was he still in the army was I he like d- serving I... on like the national guard or something maybe like that well yeah well because i guess we get a few scenes of like police officers stationed in like cranes with guns yeah uh, ready that's to my shoot only people. explanation but then he's in an arcade for like the other half of his scenes which according to trivia he shot all of his scenes in one day and the last oh. time I guess he talked about this movie was in 2013. He said that he thought it was a performance art piece and he didn't know what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't surprise me in the least. But this movie also strikes me as the kind of movie where everybody just gets their part of the script and nobody sees a whole script because they are all working independently of each other. Honestly, I feel like the quantum teleportation line is the only foreshadowing in this movie. Yeah, it's the only even anything close that comes to the the plot, which I still hardly understand up oh, until I, the end. I don't, yeah. And I did hours of research today about this. <laughs> um, the dialogue in this movie is so over the top that sometimes I enjoyed it, sometimes I thought it was a little much. And a comparison that I made that you were not happy with is I kind of compared it to Crank how just absurd everything is. Obviously, it's not nearly as enjoyable as Crank, but at one point, Sarah Michelle Gellar goes, deep down, everybody wishes they were a porn star. We're a bisexual nation living in denial because a bunch of nerds got off a boat in the 15th century. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I get the... I think that it has hints of Crank, but Crank, like, did everything that this movie does wrong. Like, Crank did it all right. Like, Crank kept the pacing up crank had characters you could understand crank had a simple straight to the point plot like this movie had none of those things it did have some insane dialogue it did have some insane violence sequences uh but like none of that matters to me if i don't know what is what's happening it would just jump from plot point to i still i have i can at least tell you i have i have no idea what the neo-marxist plot line is there's like two like lesbian hackers that are like waging war on the government 
I have no yeah. clue who they are. They never, nothing ever happens to them. So like, my best guess in the, is that essentially the Republicans have taken over government. So sort of their counterpoint is this rebellion of neo-Marxists. So these are going to be the people on the super far left. So I think what this movie is trying to do is set up a future in which the only two parties that exist are on the complete opposite ends of the spectrum. There's nobody in the middle, which is something that when I was reading about this movie, people think this movie got the future fairly right in that suddenly actors and entertainers are getting involved with politics, sort of an allusion to Donald Trump, that the government would set up an an agency to spy on every citizen in the name of national security, like the NSA, and that eventually there's only going to be two parties and they're going to be on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Everybody's going to go super far to the extremes, which is kind of what we see today. So I don't know if it's I'm just sort of like retconning all this and trying to make it fit into my brain or if that's really what was trying to happen here. Well, isn't I, I find that to just sort of be like a little bit of uh, like confirmation bias or something like yeah, that's like, probably it. Like the Patriot Act was already going on. Like I think it's all it's I think it's a bit of a stretch to call this movie prophetic, even though that's like all this movie wants to be in more ways than one. Um I don't know. I think that this movie was is kind of like a huge swing and a miss that somehow uh kind of hit the nail on the head on what the current political climate feels like. But but geez, I mean it doesn't go about doing that in any kind of like nuanced or in like to me intelligent way. It just sort of throws stuff at a wall and hopes that some of it sticks. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably a good way to put it. I, I, I'm reading my notes back here <laughs> and it, it's kind of funny. It says, so fluid karma was tested on soldiers. Is it not safe? Is that what's driving this movie? These are not questions I should have an hour and 15 minutes into a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another thing. Let's talk for a second about, the fluid karma and the bad guy of this movie. It's basically this idea that this like super genius has created some sort of like self-generating energy device with the ocean. And also in doing so has created some sort of like fuel uh, that can be injected into cars or into humans. And it causes telekinesis and stuff like, or telepathy. Charlie, how does this relate to the allegory? Like, is there, is that clear at all? How this is like allegorical with revelations? Yeah, so essentially what I understand about this is that the super genius guy, he's the inconceivable guy from Princess Bride is the only way I know him. <laughs> he, I believe he is supposed to be the Antichrist from Whoa. what I understand. Quick, I, we, I, th- I want to talk about Dwayne Johnson's character. One thing in particular that I'm just going to say thought it was an odd choice was the Star of David tattooed around his belly button. I have never seen anything like that before. <laughs> Wait, I didn't see that. I didn't see that one. I just saw the the big one of Jesus on his back. Yeah, well, uh, that was is... what that's what tripped me out here. The big Jesus and then belly button star of David. That's weird, huh? I wonder why it was around his belly button. I do think it is funny though. This is the first time we've seen movies cover up his tattoos, like in the Tooth Fairy. But I don't think we've ever seen a movie give him more tattoos. Right, they leaned into the tattoo. Uh, in this film and his character is I I will again say it is unlike any Dwayne Johnson performance I've ever seen yeah oh it's certainly. unique it is very unique is there do we have a clip to just give a sense 
of what we're working with here with this movie? Yeah, uh, there's one actually towards the end of the movie where they're on the uh, Mega Zeppelin and Bai Ling and Dwayne Johnson are talking and Dwayne Johnson is sort of putting the pieces together. Um, This will give you an idea about the insanity of the dialogue. Uh, So we'll play that clip here. You made sure Tavner went through the time rift with me. Then you hit the SUV self-destruct trigger by remote, which means I didn't kill myself. You are a pimp. Pimps don't commit suicide. Oh, you got that right. And Roland Tavner and his twin brother, they're the same person, aren't they? Two identical souls walking the face of the earth, coexisting in the same domain of chaos. What will happen if the shake hands? The fourth dimension will collapse upon itself. Stupid bitch. So it's pretty crazy. I mean, he punctuates calling her a stupid B word with making out with her, which I think is crazy. But we also see Byleen kiss like 10 people in this movie, including the inconceivable guy, which is the. And I mean, they like. Did not like that. They dove into each other's mouth. I thought it was crazy gross. It was on par with how gross the egg salad eating was in Be Cool. There's a lot of gross eating in this movie, too. The NSA lady who's in love with Dwayne Johnson is, like, shoving Cheetos in her mouth and talking. And we're getting close-ups of chewing. Not a fan, um, ever. But I do want to say, you mentioned Bai Ling making out with everyone in this movie. We also get Dwayne Johnson making out with a lot of people, including Mandy Moore, which was just a bonkers moment for me. Well, they're so they're married in this movie. Yeah, but found that weird. <laughs> Don't believe that for a second. Right? It's not. It's not really that believable. Um, I guess, but I guess Manny Bourne's character. She's supposed to be the daughter of the vice president. So that's how Dwayne Johnson's sort of wrapped up in the Republican Party, as he's married to the. He's the vice president's son-in-law. But this is um, all part of like where the movie lost me because. At that point in time, he is he has lost his memory from events that we never see from oh, like these graphic that's something novels. We haven't mentioned, like, yeah. Oh my god! Like, yeah, Charlie. There's a whole like like prologue to this movie, essentially. But that's something we haven't mentioned yet: is that Dwayne Johnson has no memory. He has amnesia in this movie, and so his portrayal of an amnesiac is like one of the craziest things. It's a lot of like finger touching. And oh, okay. Like, I wrote that note down. He does the nervous stick with his hand every oh. time he gets like nervous or freaked out, and it's like the most unnatural movement. I mean, obviously his acting's come a long way since this point, but this is like one of like the strangest choices. I mean, you know that that was just a choice that he made, right? He's like, it oh, is when my so character unhinged. gets nervous. He's gonna do this with his fingers. Yeah, it's like crazy finger tapping. He basically does. He lifts his eyes as open as when he does the eyebrow raise. Like it is like this insane look. And it, like to me, he's playing like schizophrenic more than 
amnesiac. It's like he has serious, you know, mental stuff going on up there. But half the time is able to play it real cool. But then the other half of the time is like having total psychosis. Yeah, I mean, it's it's bizarre. I, I don't know if he's playing it for comedy or what he's really trying to accomplish. But that actually kind of gets to the central question of this movie is like, is it a comedy? I saw it a lot of places designate it as a satire. And I know that not all satires are comedies, so that may not quite track. But there was a moment that straight up made me laugh harder than I've laughed in so long. And I don't know if it was intentional or not. And that's when they're talking about the time rift that was opened up and how the government tested the time rift. (laughs) And they go, we launched monkeys into it. Yeah, there's like this extra long beat. And he's like, Dwayne John's like, how did you test it? And the science is like, well, we launched monkeys. <laughs> like, yeah, it was very much like mustache twirly. Uh, we should actually play that clip because it's kind of hard to uh, describe it and get the full effect. The tidal generator within Utopia 3 has achieved simulated perpetual motion. The impact of this achievement has slowed the acceleration of the planet to such a degree that certain environmental anomalies have started to surface. One of these anomalies, discovered earlier this year, was a rift in the fourth dimension. A rift in the fabric of space-time, half a kilometer wide, located on the outskirts of Lake Mead. Yes, Mr. Santaros. Just like you imagined in your screenplay. And what did we do once we discovered a rift in the fourth dimension? We launched monkeys into it. Only a human subject could survive that jaunt. The soul of a monkey can't survive the dimensional threshold. Okay, I think that it, that clip is hilarious, but one thing that's confusing to me is like, monkeys don't have souls? How do they know? Yeah, I don't like that. I take major offense with that declaration. I guess that uh, means that there are no monkey ghosts out there. If they don't have souls, there's no ghost. Well, that raises a very that? interesting point. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm, I am, I'm pro anything that reduces the number of ghosts in the world, <laughs> but... I'm not going to deny a monkey a soul just because this movie says so. And <laughs> and given what Rampage looks like, I assure you, uh, at least gorillas have souls. I can tell you oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so take uh, that, Southland Tales. <laughs> One of the things I really enjoyed about this movie, also I don't know if it was on purpose or not, but it's that like probably the last 45 minutes of this movie take place on a blimp. <laughs> yeah, you get a lot of blimp time in this film. Oh, gosh. I mean, and obviously bad guys own blimps. That was proven to us in uh, the James Bond movie, View to a Kill. Uh, Christopher Walken owned blimps in that. Not one. I think he had two blimps. Um, two? Wow. Yeah, so if you see a blimp in the sky, you know that a supervillain's around. Or if this movie is to, is correct, the Antichrist. Uh, but that actually kind of, that's where this movie wraps up, is that Sean William Scott meets his own twin self they shake hands at rate like they're in a an ice cream truck and it starts floating and some guy launches a 
a rocket launcher into the blimp and that's when <laughs> don't it worry about up. it if it doesn't make sense <laughs> it really yeah it, and that's kind of the end of the movie i think we're supposed i think it's supposed to indicate that the fourth dimension has collapsed and that brings about the end of the world uh although we don't get anything like a new beginning although i'm not i mean i'm not super familiar with the book of revelation but um i guess it's supposed to indicate the moment at which this world that is too wicked has ended and Jesus Christ has returned. That would make Sean William Scott Jesus Christ. Which is appropriate. Appropriate. (laughs) Well, I mean, I mean, that's one thing I was kind of upset about in this movie is that the, we know we talk all the time about how Dwayne Johnson, when paired up with the right people uh, can be off the charts in his charisma and the kind of performance he can bring. With the proven Sean William Scott, Dwayne Johnson acting connection, why do they only share like five minutes of screen time and it during which Dwayne Johnson's doing his weird finger tapping the entire time? Like, we, we don't get to you. Instead of that, we get Dwayne Johnson and Sarah Michelle Gellar for an hour and 20 minutes of this movie. Although I, I, I did not mind her. I thought she was actually I thought she was actually pretty good. So do you have any last thoughts? I think I've kind of covered everything i wanted to oh except for the i wish we would have done the one-liner bracket after we did this movie because there's a pretty good one and i think you know what i'm talking about jordan yeah this is uh a fairly like transcendent line that had we had we god had we had the foresight to get this movie in before our bracket i think it i think it has the chops to have made it pretty far in the rankings <laughs> if we had taken fluid karma we would have known seriously do we have a quote for it uh, maybe a clip for it i mean it's beautiful yeah you know what i actually don't have a clip for it but i think i'll just read it because it's repeated about three times in the movie so the the setup for this is that people believe that dwayne johnson's going to commit suicide and he says i'm a pimp and pimps don't commit suicide oh i mean <laughs> I guess that's true. I I can't speak from experience. I think that that's a I think that's correct though. Well, this was the period of time. That's kind of what dates this movie. This is the period of time where you called a cool person a pimp. Yeah, this is like <laughs> uh this is the time of Yeah by Usher. That's yeah. sort of around this this era. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a, he delivers it just he's just like syrupy. It's beautiful. He says it by Ling says it. And doesn't Sean William Scott say it? Or yeah, some, Sean William Scott says else, it. Yeah. Um, there is one thing that I do want to mention. I do have one final thought here. Um, and that is the musical sequence with Justin Timberlake. Oh my gosh, how have we not talked about it? It's a full-length music video starring Justin Timberlake, but for some baffling reason, he's not singing. It's uh, He's like, he's like lip-syncing to something. Yeah, it's uh, to... All these things that I've done by the killers, which I don't know if you have like a world famous pop star singer, why don't you just like retrack and do, use his voice? Uh, yes, I have no idea why. It's this weird uh, fever dream after he takes fluid karma. Um, there are like dancing Marilyn Monroe nurses around in this arcade. He's making eye contact with the lens he's like drinking beer it's so weird. oh my god the amount of like budweiser that this movie consumes it's like always showing us like cans of beer and he's like <laughs> like crushing it in his hand and like pouring some on his chest like 
My favorite, though, is when Dwayne Johnson, as part of his research for his role, is drinking a six-pack of beer, but he hasn't taken he hasn't <laughs> taken the plastic ring off, so he's holding all six, and he's drinking just one of the corner ones. An incredible I choice. I love that. <laughs> I love that. A very short thing that happens in this movie is we see a car commercial in which the cars have sex. Yeah, I didn't like, didn't care for that. The, the, the tailpipe, the exhaust pipe, it like grows and is shaped like a like a penis, and the cars mounts on another one. It's so weird. And they this like is a commercial that plays in this alternate universe. Yeah, they show us this like th- as the movie audience, like we get a full like a full view of this. It's not something in the background. Like this is a full screen car on car penetration sequence, and I don't think that cars. You know, I don't think we need to as a society. We don't need to per- like give cars human characteristics we don't need that we don't need that no i'm okay without it yeah so that's all i got in this movie i'm sure we could talk more about it uh but honestly i don't want to waste anyone's time i think we should move right on to franchise viagra franchise viagra (laughs) and as always the franchise viagra boils down to three tenets that is hard work charisma and physique Hard work, Jordan. What do you think? I, I think he's like working hard. He's swinging for the fences. You know, he's got that nervous tick thing. I think he is working hard. And I think that it's even doubly so given the fact that it seems like the director slash writer didn't give him or any of his coworkers anything to, to go off of. So I I don't know. I think he, I think he worked hard. I, yeah, he, I think he passes this for sure. When it comes to charisma... That's kind of where I think it drops off quite a bit. I never see him as likable or charismatic. We don't really get, like, I I don't see this character as being a famous movie star. No, that is, in a movie that is probably one of the least believable films we've ever watched, that might be the least believable part of all. Uh, There is no way that this guy is a famous movie star. I don't care what kind of traumatic uh, inter-time warp stuff he went through. He doesn't have it. He hasn't got it. I don't buy it one bit. Yeah, I agree. I think he fails that. And lastly, physique. And I'm going to say it. This is skinny era Dwayne Johnson, and it's also like muddied by the weird tattoos that he has. So for me, he doesn't pass that either, which is so rare, and I feel so sorry. And if Dwayne, if you're listening, you, I'm just saying you look a lot better now, buddy. Yeah, you look better now. This was This was Dwayne Johnson like... Like this is this is a few years after uh, or this is like right before the game plan. So he's kind of he's like skinny Dwayne Johnson with a lot of hair. It's unsettling. Didn't love it. Uh, No for me. When you think about ratings, where does this movie go? I have a feeling it's going pretty low for you. Yeah, Charlie, this movie is going pretty low for me. It's it's not going to be the very bottom of my list. Uh, Wow. Yeah, I am shocked. What's at the bottom of your list right now? The bottom of my list is G.I. Joe Retaliation, which oh, I, how dare you. I hated that movie. Um, Wait. Oh, my God. Are you saying that you would rather watch this movie again than G.I. Joe? Yes. Yes. Uh, in terms – this movie was weird enough. I did not care for it. Um, I did not enjoy it. I wouldn't choose to watch this movie again if I had to. But looking at the bottom of my list, I have G.I. Joe, Tooth Fairy, Race to Witch Mountain, Baywatch, and Doom. And then above that is Planet 51. So that's a kind of a, a group of stinkers at the bottom. Um, if I had to slot it in, it would be a right above uh, Planet 51, actually. It would be above Planet 51. That movie, 
I thought was pretty hateful and uh, not redemptive. This movie was weird enough that I want to watch it again. And I'll tell you what, Charlie, I actually want to get those graphic novels because I'm into the kind of this, the world building that has, that this movie tried, like attempted to do. For some reason, I feel like it might come across better as a book. Um, So this is actually going to slot in as my 16th Dwayne Johnson movie out of the 22 we've covered. When we talk about bad Dwayne Johnson movies, there's at least some redeeming factor. I know for you, you know, you look at movies like G.I. Joe, you don't see anything likable there. But to me, he was so cartoonish and and he was the best part of that movie. And I think that that stands for something for me. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think I'm going to have to rank it as the worst movie that we have seen so far. I never thought anyone would beat Baywatch because I was so Worse angry. than Baywatch? I think so. I think so. I wanted to give this movie a little credit for being so ambitious, but the fact that I feel like this movie is probably very popular with high schoolers that think they're super deep, I think that that speaks to how bad it is. And honestly, if this is the worst movie that Roger Ebert ever saw, I feel like I'm in pretty good company. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely not a gem uh, by any means. But I'm, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that you don't have. There, there's not any redemptive value for you with this movie. Would you change your mind if the movie was 45 minutes shorter? Uh, yeah, I feel like most movies can be 45 minutes shorter. I think it would have helped this movie, but I would don't think it would have made it any more coherent. It just would have meant that I would have had to suffer through it for a little less time. So that's kind of where I stand. Rock Talk Nation, thank you as always for listening to our show. Your support of Rock Talk has made us the number one rated and reviewed and streamed and probably downloaded and probably favorited and retweeted Dwayne Johnson theme podcast on the face of the freaking planet. If you type Dwayne Johnson into iTunes, we are the first thing that freaking pops up. That's a fact. It is all because of your support and your patronage of what we do. So if you haven't yet, please Go and like us on our social media platforms. That's at Rock Talk Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And we're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Rock Talk Pod. And we tell you this every week, and it's not going to change now. The number one thing that you can do is leave us a review on iTunes. So if you haven't already, get on iTunes. Leave us a quick five-star review. It takes two minutes, but uh, we'll love you forever. So let me ask you what the smart move is. So join us next week, where we're going to tackle a mini episode, a topical rock topic of the week, and we'll see you then, jabronis. (laughs) 